Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the original Loretta Brown Show radio to open the heart, heal the soul, and awaken the consciousness. And I am Loretta Brown. Ah, I'm the owner of Reiki Oasis right here in the Seattle area for the last, well, I don't know, 28 years or so. And uh, I wanted to be sure and be a big shout out to my uh, patrons. I am a listener-supported show. If you want to be part of that family, you can go to patreon.com slash the Loretta Brown Show and, you know, get in on that. And then I have some um, wonderful things coming up at Reiki Oasis, and you can always schedule everything at schedule.reikioasis.com. Uh, Reiki 1 class, Reiki 2, and Master class in February, March, and April on the, I think it's the second Saturday day of each month, and those classes will be held at Reiki Oasis, so uh, be sure to check us out. Anyway, Benny, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Hello. Good to see you. Hello. Yeah. Nice to see you. We are one week into the year. What do you think? Feels pretty good. Uh, finally, things have calmed down on my uh, home front. You know, we um, we have the holidays, of course, with the you know Christmas celebration, the New Year celebration, my birthday, which was last week. And Happy then, birthday. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And then I had uh, the boy's birthday was a couple days ago, too. So jam-packed uh it's finally done this is like now the downslide to january so this is good i didn't know that your twins were were capricorns also you guys are all capricorns yes and also here's the other little fun trivia uh blast uh their mom's birthday is on my day as well so we're both the fourth and they're on the 10th different years though for uh their mom and i so that's that's a wild thing when we found out on our first date. <laughs> oh, I just love way back that. when. <laughs> so you're a family of Capricorns. I don't know if I've ever met a family of Capricorns before. I feel very honored. Uh, that- well, there's always room for a first, you know. There, Loretta. Yeah, if you want to get to know us better, I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, like you know, I don't have your chart, but you're you guys are all being activated right now and and have been for a while. Oh, and- don't I know. <laughs> Dude, I know you don't need to go there. <laughs> You're right on it. Well, it's it's all good. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all good. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I love Capricorn. You know, that's the the that's the sign that people are not quite sure if that's a mermaid or a goat or what is that, right? You know, and I call it the sea goat. Yeah, no, it's super uh, super awesome. We also, well, I thought it was funny back in the day, but to have like yeah. a sign above the garage that said the House of Caps, but. I think that's more of like, uh, what is it like? Is that Romeo and Juliet? Like uh-huh. the cat, the Capulets uh, the, and the Montagues or something like that. Yeah. And then I'm like, nah, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> Just yeah, that, those are fi- them fighting. Yeah, exactly, them fighting words, right? There. Fighting words. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Anyway, yeah, that's very very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, happy birthday to you and your whole family. And Thank you. Do you guys just celebrate the whole month? Well, their their mom and I aren't uh, together anymore, and so we have to, you know, do all the scheduling, separating outside of that. And so the girlfriend and I, we did a little thing for us, and hers is in December as well, too. So we got to throw her birthday and then her daughter as well. So um, it's just one wild December, January month, but we we spread it out kind of thin. Uh, I took the boys out yesterday. We did a little, uh, well, Dave and Buster's. It's a popular, you know, arcade place around here in the Seattle area. So sure. we went there, did a little dinner thing at home, made some really good burgers, some Benny's burgers. I make a mean burger. So did, I did that, and uh, we just kind of chilled. I love it. Yeah. I love everything that you're saying right now. Thank so, you. Wow, what a, what a celebration. It is. Always is. 
Yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, yeah, I can see how I, you know, you just keep having fun and keep having parties. That's what you do. <laughs> so to speak. Excuses for Benny's Burgers <laughs> or whatever that you're doing. Yeah, I love it. Well, it's a, it's a, if, have you watched Stranger Things? Yes. Okay, well, there, that's the reference right there, too, so. Uh, I didn't know that until I saw the the show as well. It's in the very beginning. I'm like, that's a there's Benny's Burgers. Like, I need that T-shirt. So <laughs> it's good times. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, happy birthday to you, and also happy birthday to all the Capricorns out there. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So I'm gonna talk about Capricorn for just a minute. We're gonna do a little Ooh. astrology check all in. Right. And um, we did start January in Capricorn season. Capricorn walking, walking, welcoming us, can't say it, but it's doing it, into the new year. And one of the big themes for 2023 is innovation and independence. And we're learning not to lose ourselves in others. Ooh, I got to say that again. We're learning not to lose ourselves in others. We are learning we can be resourceful and use all of our skills to get where we want to be. Um, I talked last week about Capricorn being the sign of the sea goat, and Capricorn is such a wonderful, hardworking sign, but the sea goat has the ability to reach the highest mountains and go to the deepest depths with that mermaid tail. So um, I always say don't underestimate your Capricorns. Don't do it, right? Because they're going to come out at the, the at the top of the pile. That's what's going to happen. So we started the year with Mercury and Mars retrograde. Mercury communication, Mars is that fiery planet that can get us into trouble um, and inspire us, right? But they were both retrograde, which created a lot of very sluggish energy. And on January 12th, which happens to be today, Mars will go direct at eight degrees Gemini. And this will bring a huge relief in the area of your life ruled by Gemini. And if you've been feeling stuck, Mars going direct will show you the way out of the maze. Yay, thank goodness, thank goodness, thank goodness. Um, and um, on January 18th, which is next Wednesday, I think it is, Mercury is gonna go direct at eight degrees Capricorn. Hmm, eight degrees Gemini, eight degrees Capricorn. Hmm, just got to pay attention to those degrees. And if Mars direct brought your mojo back, Mercury direct will bring you the much needed clarity and focus to follow through on your plans. And also on January 18th, there will be a Sun-Pluto conjunction at 27 degrees Capricorn, so much Capricorn energy, which asks us- to You're welcome. Face... Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Hang in there, Capricorns. By the way, my moon, my moon's in Capricorn for all of you listeners, so it explains a lot of things. Yeah, but it does. Yeah, I have a lot of Capricorn friends. But anyway, on January 18th, that Sun-Pluto conjunction at 27 degrees Capricorn is going to ask us to do something we don't really like to do, but that's part of the plan. And we're going to have to face the bare naked truth of who are you Ooh. really? Mm. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. I heard naked, and then that just piqued my interest. But we can go <laughs> you back. You didn't hear anything after no, that. No, word, I, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm no longer gonna comment anything else after that. <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, anyway, I hope, I hope you're staying tuned in. I've got a great author today. Yes. Don't run away, people. Anyway, this nope. aspect, <laughs> this aspect is rarely comfortable because it's asked us to take a look at a part of ourselves that doesn't quite live up to its full potential. Hmm. And it, it, well, you know, I always tell people, you know, sometimes it's best just to observe this self. Don't get into all this criticism and judgment. You know, if there's a part of you that's not living up to its full potential, maybe it would like to, huh? Yeah, there could be that. So the good thing is that if there is some discomfort around these degrees going on, that it's going to push you to do something about it. So you're going to get out there and change something. So Sun conjunct Pluto's goal is to awaken us to our true power, to our true potential. Hmm. I got to say this too, because that's such a good segue to bring in my um, guest today. Uh, what is our true potential? What's our true power? But I want to say this too. I have so many clients. I kind of take the the temperature of the world by what my clients are bringing in to me. And there is a lot of people that are bringing their attention back to themselves, back to their bodies, back to their health, and back to that latent thing, that thing over there that you haven't really been doing. It's almost like we've just been plodding along and now all of a sudden we're like, mm, that's not enough for me. I want to go higher. I want to go deeper. And so, yes, thank you to all that Capricorn energy and the Taurus energy too and everything else. So this is a great segue. My guest today is David Guy. Yeah. The author of Hank Heals, a novel of miracles. And in his novel, Henry, Hank, Wilder, a divorced loner, accidentally taps into his true potential. Yeah, I did that. I wove it together by curing an ex-girlfriend of her recurring cancer with his touch. And what follows is a lighthearted, spiritual, brilliant, kind of sexy story that we can all relate to. David is the author of five previous novels. He's published articles in a variety of publications and one nonfiction book. And David is retired from teaching at Duke University and also wrote two books with his meditation teacher, Larry Rosenberg. Welcome to the show, David. I'm going to do my best not to call you Hank. It's right. so <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you call me Hank, I'll forgive you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So the book is Hank Heals. And I really enjoyed reading this book. What a what a, a wonderful author you are. You make it easy to follow through. Um, so I'd like to start out by um, just talking about you for a little bit so that sure. I'm sure my audience doesn't know who you are, right? Right. <laughs> so when did you start writing? And, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Yeah. Oh, well, I started writing very young. I, I actually realized that writing was a special activity to me when I was 11 years old. Something happened to me that made me see that writing was something that I could learn from and grow with. And um, that was really an important moment for me. And then, you know, I had thought I wanted to be a doctor because my father was a doctor. But when I took biology in ninth grade, I realized I, that wasn't going to happen. So actually, it was right after that, when I was 15 years old, that I decided I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to write books. But then, it, of course, it was a very long journey from there. Um, 
But really, I, I would say I've been a serious writer since I was 15 years old. And, um, but I had the usual kind of apprenticeship that writers always had. I, um, you know, I published some things in high school, but in the high school literary magazine. But then once I went to college, um, I didn't publish. I, I went to college at age 18 and I, I was seriously writing that whole time. And I didn't publish a word until I was, uh, I think, 27 or 28. So I had 10 years of writing. I wrote 40 or 50 short stories. I wrote a novel that didn't get published. Um, but then uh, at that, that was a kind of crisis for me that not publishing that first novel. And I guess that was right when I was 27 years old. So that was a big deal in my life. And um, that was when I kind of uh, turned things around and realized that I had, it, had to bring my writing uh, closer to home. I guess I could elaborate on that if you'd like. Uh, I, I would love that, and I'm also thinking the age of 27. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna keep talking about astrology, but that's a that's a big point in people's lives, right? You it's a big that. age. Yes, it is, and I knew that at the time. Wow. So um, my father, who was a doctor, as I said, had died when I was 16 years old, oh. and that was the, uh, the major trauma in my life that I had to heal from. And, um, you know, when I was 16, I was able to, of course, I knew intellectually that my father had died. He had leukemia, and we were told that he had leukemia about six months before he died, although he had known for six years. He had known, but my parents didn't want to tell me when I was that young, when I was just 10 years old. So um, I had, in, at the beginning of my writing career, when I was, I, I studied with a, a writer who's very well known in the South at that time and at Duke, Reynolds Price, and he was my writing mentor. And as soon as he, he began teaching us, he said, you know, the most important thing in writing is to write from an emotional place, write something that's important to you emotionally. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he said that, I heard that with this feeling of dread, like, oh, I don't want to write about that. You know, that's the one thing I don't want to write about. But I tried to do that a couple of times with him um, and through the years. Um, but when I was uh, 27 years old uh, I, and I had not published that first novel, I began to see a, a counselor, uh, a therapist, really. And um, my presenting problem was that I was, I'd done all this writing and I deeply wanted to be a writer, but it wasn't working out for me. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I told him something of my life story, he wanted to talk about this thing, about uh, my father having died. And um, he suspected, we talked about what surrounded that, and he suspected that there was some wish to prove myself to my father that I'd never gotten to do, which I think was true. So we started to talk about that. But the very first thing that was really important to me is that um, when I talked about the circumstances of my father's death, he asked me to go off and write a letter to my father and tell him all the things that I'd never been able to tell him. Because not only had the circumstances been that I didn't see my father when he died, but I just wasn't able to do that when I was 16 years old. I was very conflicted and very angry about what was happening. I think anger was the thing I felt most strongly. So anyway, uh, in those days, uh, I was trying to write fiction and I wanted to get on with that. I didn't want to do what I thought was this stupid little self-help thing of writing this letter. Uh, 
And at that time, I was writing at the uh, university library, at the Duke University Library, because my son was young and I couldn't write around the house. And I went to this, the fourth floor of the library to write this letter. And I wrote, Dear Dad, at the top of the page, and I burst into tears. I had no idea that was going to happen. That was just a total shock. And I just felt all the grief from, from that. And so I stumbled off and found a place that was away from everything. And I continued to write that letter. And then I, re I began to write about my father a lot, my relationship to my father and about his death. And I realized that to write a, a, a good first novel, I needed to write about my father's death. And so my first novel, Football Dreams, is about a, a, a young man. It was just my story, basically. A young man who's trying to prove himself to his father by playing football, but his father dies before he's able to do that. He doesn't make the team, he doesn't make the varsity team until after his father has died. And that was my story, basically. So that was very that was that was my first novel, and then I've gone on from there. Wow. Um thank you for sharing that. What a journey. And um uh, there's so much uh honesty in that and and vulnerability also you know David um but I think that like you say there's something about writing right and you for you to be able to open yourself up in that way that really does come through in your writing I oh, think that's you. what's yeah. appealing about reading your book is like I said it pulls you in it's very intimate in its own right mm -hmm. but um yeah I I also, I've had these experiences, like I'm a journaler, like I love journaling and uh, dream work and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm, I'm totally with you. That exercise where you're, you're going to sit down and start writing, man, it just popped you right open. Right. And I'm a big journaler too. And I think for me, uh, that was something, you know, I had another writing mentor, this man named Wallace Valley, who I met when I was also, also met when I was 18. And he told me to keep a journal and to write in my journal every day. And I promptly did not do that when I was 18 because I wanted to write fiction. And I thought, why am I gonna, you know? But once I started writing uh, uh, to publish, <laughs> even though a lot of it wasn't published at first, I began to keep a journal, um, not only to keep track of things that were going on with my writing, but also to keep track of what was going on with me emotionally. Right. And that was all that was always a, a track that ran alongside whatever I was writing. You know, what was happening in my life now and what um, you know had happened in my life before, which was often what I was writing about. In the case of football dreams, the thing that I really wanted to do my whole life was be a writer, much more than playing football. So I was kind of writing about that wish and the wish. Um, and I'll just say also, Loretta, that my father himself, although he was a doctor, had actually had a period of time in his life when he wanted to be a writer. So I was kind of that, oh, that thing that Jung said, you know, the, the young man lives out the, uh, the, the life that his, his parent had wished they'd had. Yeah. And um, that was true for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I find a couple of things interesting about that because we're going to talk about your book in just a little bit and your dad being a doctor and then you write a book about someone who heals with their hands. Yes. We'll get into that in, in just a minute. 
Um, so how old were you when that first book was published? I was 32. Wow. Okay. So you had that span of that time. Long, long apprenticeship, let's say yeah. from 15 or 18 until I was 32. I had published a few, a few shorter pieces before that, but yeah, the first big national publication was when I was 32. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, before we get too far into it, because, I, you know, I'm a kind of a firm believer that everybody's got their superpower, everybody has their gifts that they came and you're really only going to be happy when you share them, when you figure that out. Like, what is your secret power and how do you do that? W what advice would you give anybody listening that would be wanting to be an author, a published author, right? What, what would you say to them? Well, I, I do think that, um, you know, when I was young, uh, I naturally wanted, you know, fame and fortune and all those things. I wanted to be famous. I wanted everybody to love me. And, uh, you know, but I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I soon realized as I was writing that that wasn't actually the reason I was writing, that there was a deeper reason that went back to what I saw when I was 11 years old. And that deeper reason has to do with, um, with touching into a part of yourself that you can only know through certain activities, through writing. Meditation has been another one for me. And that's, of course, a big theme in my book. But um, so I... You know, if somebody comes to me and they talk to me about being a writer, one of the things I, I say to them, and it sounds stupid, um, but I say, well, how do you think you'll make a living? Because <laughs> we all dream of making a living as a writer. And there have been a few years, there were a few years when I was able to do that. But one of the thing that's in, things that's important is that someone understand that there's making a living and then there's your true vocation. And although I've had huge ups and downs in my writing career, I mean, you know, when you re recite these titles from my biography, it sounds like, oh, it's been great the whole time, but it hasn't. I've had big ups and downs, periods when things didn't get published and periods when they did. And I've had to do other kinds of work. The teaching I did at Duke really had nothing to do with, I was teaching in the School of Public Policy and teaching grad students how to write a policy memo. <laughs> but I did that because it gave me time to do the writing I really wanted to do. And the only kind of really bad spot in my writing career was when I was trying, I needed to make money, but wasn't able to do it through writing and I was kind of lost. So I think the thing that I would say to somebody is just um, keep focused on this true part of your vocation, which is what you're really doing. That's how you're learning about yourself. and. Um, keep that in mind and don't worry. You can't help worrying about how your career is going, but don't let that be the central focus. Yeah. I, um, I'm i a musician, right? I've got a okay. degree in piano performance, right? right. So I'm, I'm paper trained heavily, as they say, right? But I remember studying about um, composers and Charles Ive, you know, as a composer, as a great composer. Right. And he chose somewhere along the line that he would not try to make his living being a composer. He would sell life insurance or something and make his money that way so that when he composed, he could compose whatever it was that wanted to come out of him without feeling like he had to meet that prescriptive thing. And uh, that's always stuck in my head. 
Um, right. Yeah, yeah. That's very so, good. Yeah, so to be able to, in your case, I'm really hearing how you somehow freed yourself up in that. And then I did chuckle when you're saying you're teaching about writing policies. So I went, oh, here's the. <laughs> Here's the dry thing over here, and then here's the delicious thing over here. But then that works out in that beautiful balancer, right? Right. And yeah. also that, you know, learning to write a policy memo was very important to the students. Yeah. So I, I was engaged in something that was important, and I was good at that, and I worked hard at it. But then, I, you know, when I had time to, to write for myself, I could do exactly what I wanted to do because I didn't have to make money that way. I wish I'd started that, you know, 20 years before I did. <laughs> well, and, and and thank you for that, because I really do mean it. If if anybody's listening that would love to be an author or a writer, I think that talking to someone who's been through it can give you that advice. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's invaluable. There's no words for that. So do listen to that. And, and remember, you can go back and listen to the show again and write it down if you need to, you know, take a little sound clip and keep playing it in your head so that you've got it. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, because this book, Hank Heals, you've got such a mix of uh, Buddhism, Catholicism, um, all kinds of things in it. Where Where are you spiritually, if you don't mind me asking that question? Oh, no. Okay. No, so I grew up in a Christian household, but um, I, and, you know, that was important to me when I was young, and my father was a, an elder in the Presbyterian Church, uh, and his religious life was very important to him, and that was, that's something I've, I've written about a lot, but, um, and so I kind of had my ups and downs with Christianity as well, um, but in my so I, I tried to come back to it when I was in my early 20s I had kind of drifted away and I really uh, kind of I don't know how to put it worked at being a Christian for five or six years and it, it somehow or other I don't know if it, it, it partly had to do with my writing career but I just couldn't get my mind around I couldn't tell whether Christianity wasn't right for me or I wasn't right for Christianity it, 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 you know, sometimes it seemed the one thing and sometimes it seemed the other. And I think, uh, honestly, Loretta, the truth of the matter was that at that time, I was a religious person without a religion. Yeah. And that's an unhappy person. Yeah. And I was also very defensive about it. I had a, um, so we're kind of two therapists in now. I'm with, I'm with my third therapist in my mid-30s. And he brought up this thing that someone had mentioned to me that they thought I was angry about religion and I angry about religion I you know I said what why would that be and he just felt this for me a lot um but I do think and I was very defensive and fussy so then I met I had uh, my first wife and I were divorced and I'd, I'd met a new woman who was actually herself um quite catholic but not like any Catholic I'd ever met. You know, I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is a very Catholic town. It's very ethnic and Catholic. Uh, so I thought I knew what a Catholic was until I met this woman. And she had worked in um, for this organization called Witness for Peace in El Salvador and Nicaragua. She was a Catholic social activist. And when we, try, when we talked about religion, I just... Uh, 
I couldn't get a handle on it because I'd say, well, you believe this and this and this. She said, no, I don't believe that. That's, you know, that's not what it's about for me. But I couldn't kind of get a handle on what she did believe. And then um, because her religion was very intuitive and personal, and she, I didn't know this at the time, but she'd also spent half her life studying Taoism. She was really interested in Taoism as well as Catholicism. So in any case, she decided she wanted to go to divinity school um, and um, she wanted to step back from the work and go to divinity school. And she went to a Jesuit school, Western School of Theology. And at that time, my son was a senior in high school. So um, she didn't ask me to come up and join her that first year, but then she transferred to Harvard the second year and asked me to come up and she wanted us to have a spiritual practice in common. This was something um, because she felt there was this gulf between us. And I think just personally, she wanted that, but also because she was at divinity school and she didn't want to be there with this total heathen or whatever. So she suggested that we take a meditation class together. And there was a center that was just a few blocks from our house, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And I think, um, when she said she wanted us to have a spiritual practice in common, I, I felt no such wish or such need, but it was one of those things where I did it because she wanted it. I didn't want to fight about it, you know? <laughs> so I went to this class, uh, but it's this kind of angry defensive person that's going into this class. And I was just all set to hear some, you know, pious nonsense that I was going to object to and start arguing about it or something. But what happened was, we were in this basement room and this man came down, kind of perfectly ordinary man, didn't look like some religious figure, talked to us a little bit about why we were there. And then he just started to talk about how to sit and how to follow your breathing. It was very simple instruction. And he said, we were going to sit every week and we were gonna sit a longer period of time every week. And he would like us to sit every day at home. And, um, one of the things about me is that I've always been a dutiful student. I do the homework. If the teacher says sit every day at home, you know, I sit every day at home. And um, so I began to do that. Um, I, I began a daily meditation practice at that time with no particular feeling that it was something I wanted to do, but I was in this class and I had to do it. I would also say though that this man that I met, who was Larry Rosenberg, who I later wrote two books with, um, somehow inspired confidence in me. Uh, I, I felt as if I knew him. And honestly, I know this is gonna just sound like I made this up. He reminded me a little of my father. Um, he was a very warm, affectionate person. Yeah. And so um, I began to practice and we did, we did the beginner's class and then we did an intermediate class. And then uh, my wife um, couldn't go on because she was very busy, but I took the intermediate class again and that center, that was as high as it went. <laughs> intermediate was the best you could be. And somewhere in that period of time, I would say in the first semester, or maybe into the second, I realized that I had found something that I'd been looking for all my life. Yeah. And that I'd actually been looking for in Christianity and hadn't been able to find. And that was this way of connecting with something larger uh, than myself. Um, but the 
<laughs> I've already said this, and, and you'll know it when, as I'm saying it. The other place where I had found that was in my writing. And I, I, I kind of knew that. I had a hunch about that. But I, I wouldn't have put it in the way I've just put it now. I just had this feeling when, when things were looking bad for me and I wasn't getting anything published and, you know, well-meaning people were kind of suggesting, well, you know, I, I was teaching a secondary, in a secondary school and, yeah, you do that well. The, teach, the students like you. Why don't you just do that? There was something in me that knew I, honestly, I just could not stop writing. And the way I would have put it is, if I stop writing, I'll die. And I think what I meant by that was that I needed to connect with this larger thing, deeper place, whatever you want to call it. And then once I found that in meditation as well, that kind of freed up my writing in a new way because I could connect with that in meditation. And now I was free to write any way I wanted or to write as much or as little as I wanted. I didn't have to do it. Whereas before I'd had to do it. I would have walked through a brick wall. Or, you know, I just had to do what I had to do, but um, I, I no longer felt that way. Once my meditation practice was established, which took some time, I'm not talking about a short period of time now, weeks or months. I don't, I don't really remember, but, um, you know, that was uh, 1991, and I've had a daily practice of meditation ever since then. Wow. Um, I can deeply relate to what you're saying, and I also love what you're saying. There, you know, a lot of people come to me, and they're always talking about something missing, wanting to make that deep connection. And right. um, I also, you know, I, I call it laying laying next to the well right? Um, but it's that nurturing or just that communion or, or in that space, like none of the words really get to it, but that's, that's my, that's my refresh. That's my soft place to land. That's where right. I, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I'm like you, if for me, it's vitally important. Like it's vitally important, especially because I work with so many people and do so much healing, channeling work and that kind of thing. And it's like, um, sometimes people, say, well, Loretta, don't you get enough of that in your work? And I go, but I'm doing that with and for other people. And this is personal, you know, to right. draw from that well for yourself or to make that connection for yourself. And so finding what that is, is just, in my opinion, brilliant and uh, wonderful. And yeah, writing and meditation. Yeah, I think that's great. We're going to stop right there and take a station break, Benny, if you're still around. And um uh, I want to remind everybody that my guest today is David Guy, and he is a wonderful author. His book, Hank Heals, a Novel of Miracles, we're really going to get into it. And it's a very unusual book because it is a spiritual fiction novel. It's kind of juicy. So don't go away, because when we get back, believe it or not, we're going to talk about things like faith and faith healing and sex. And yes, I did say that. Okay, we're going to take a station break. Energy is powerful. It's all around us, mysterious, full of potential. Directing positive healing energy to raise your vibrational rate through Reiki can change your life. Reiki master Loretta Brown has relieved stress, sadness, anger, and even helped clients lose weight, stop smoking, and end sleep disorders. Worldwide, people have sought out Reiki Oasis. If you want help with your dis-ease, visit ReikiOasis.com. 
harness life's energy. Visit ReikiOasis.com today. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 a.m. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now, we're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. You saved my life. You held my hand when I was scared. You helped me say goodbye to my dad. You were an example for me. You gave me strength when I thought I had none left. I couldn't tell you then, but I want to say thank you, all of you, for everything. Thank you to the physicians, nurses, and others working in America's hospitals and health systems. A message from the American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, and American Nurses Association. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Woohoo! Yeah, Benny, Cosmic DJ, thank you. <laughs> I need a miracle every day. Anyway, welcome back to the original Loretta Brown Show. I am Loretta Brown. My guest today is David Guy. We're discussing his book, Hank Heals, a novel of miracles. I want to remind everybody that these shows are archived. And you can download them for free and listen to them over and over again from the KKNW 1150 AM archives, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Podcast One, Twitter, YouTube, and all kinds of various and sundry places that surprise me this show has gone to. So um, please uh, listen to this show over and over and, and research through because I have all kinds of amazing people on my show. Um so let's talk about your book, David. Let's right. talk about it. Um, Hank Heels. Uh, where did you get the idea for this story? And tell us about the title. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, the place that I got the idea for the story was something that happened to me when I was young. And that was that uh, I had this friend who, uh, when, when I was 12 years old, so this would have been 1960, we, there were these faith healers on television and we were making, one in particular, and we were making fun of him at school. And one day this guy, this friend of mine who I'd known since we were in day camp together, told me that he had been healed by a faith healer. He took me aside and he wasn't you know, scolding me or something, but he said this had happened to him. And that when he was young, he had broken his ankle. Um, the doctor had said it, but he, continued after he was supposedly cured, he continued to have a limp and to have pain. So he, they went back to the doctor, the doctor x-rayed it, he said, this is growing crookedly and um, we're gonna have to break it again. And his mother just didn't wanna do that. And his mother, I, I, did, I never met his mother, but I know from who he was that she was not, a, she was a, you know, upper middle-class woman, but she took her son to a faith healer on a radio show in Pittsburgh and something happened and healed him. He went, he, the limp disappeared, the pain disappeared. And since you've read my book, you know I've put this story right into the middle of a book with a different person ha happening to. But this, when this happened, I could tell he didn't want me to tell any of my friends and I never did. But I went home and talked to my father. And my father said, that woman preys on poor people and to get their money. And 
this couldn't have happened. So I had this thing where my friend had said one thing to me and my father had said another thing to me. And my father was a religious person. But it's one of those things where you have to carry both those things together. And I carried that, you know, for 60 years or whatever. And uh, I wrote about it on one other occasion, but um, I'd written an earlier novel about Hank called Jake Fades. And in that novel, that novel, novel is about what we call in uh, Buddhism transmission, Jake passing the teaching on to Hank. But this novel is about um, the teacher dying. And you know now, if I've told you my life story, what an important moment this is for me. And I think that that's a moment when um, the teacher, th this man needs to heal. So I had this title, Jake Fades, though I thought of the title, Hank Heals. And as soon as I thought of that title, I thought, wait a minute, what does that mean? And what might be another way to look at that? And this is the first time in my life that the title gave me the idea for the novel. Yeah. And so I thought, what if I write a book where, because I, I'd certainly, you know, I'd meditated. I know that it involves energy and um you know, I felt the healing energy of meditation for as long as I've been doing it. And suddenly I thought, I know that that healing energy exists. And I know that various, you know, spiritual figures have been said to have it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Krishnamurti, who is somebody I've read a lot and uh, apparently had healing powers, uh, which people have credited. Vimala Takara said he healed her from a, an inner ear infection that was life-threatening as, as I remember. So it just occurred to me that uh, I ought to explore this. And I had this story from the past that I could put in. And I mean, this novel, I, I think I keep both sides there. As, as somebody said to me, one of my first readers said to me, uh, Hank is skeptical about his powers. Julie, his girlfriend, is convinced that he has the powers and the reader isn't sure. And that's how I like to keep it. And because that uncertainty is the same uncertainty I have about ever since I this thing happened to me when I was 12 years old. Um, I love this so much because uh, I'm a Reiki practitioner, right. lots of other hats. And when we study the history of Reiki through a, a Buddhist lineage, right? Mm -hmm. Lineage. Um, we do talk about how um, um, Mikhail Yasui was studying Zen Buddhism and wanted to know the meaning to life, what's the meaning of life, and his his uh, master sent him to meditate and pray, and what happened was that he had some sort of an experience where he was not seeking a way of, quote, healing, he was seeking enlightenment, and, and it came through as a byproduct. Right. And, mm -hmm, as a byproduct. And so I'm reading your book and I'm like, you are so spot on with everything that you've got in this book. And it's a fictional book, but it was delightful for me to read because I could relate to a lot of the things in there. Well, um, I, I read up on Reiki, among other things, before I wrote the book. Yeah. Yeah, I bet you did. And there's also this really interesting, um, I'm going to say juggling act, because you're absolutely right. Like, is Hank really healing or is it the uh, virgin mother, right? Right. Because she's right. really in this story. So is it faith? <laughs> is it energy? 
what is it? Right. And, you know, um, the Virgin Mother, of course, comes from my wife's Catholicism, as I've said now, but also she, uh, for many years, we went to Mexico and she collected images of the Virgin. And so we had, through the years, we've probably had 30 of these things. She's sometimes given them away. Um, but we we still have them all over our house. And um, so, and through the years, we've heard so many stories of just miraculous healing of ordinary people in, in the contemporary world. So again, that's one of those situations as when I was 12 years old, what do you make of that, you know? Uh, but well, it fascinates me. Yeah, it fascinates me too. And I've been doing, uh, running Reiki Oasis for almost 30 years, right? So I have a lot of those stories. Right. And um, there are many, many times when even I am like, have I, has in, because we don't do anything. Reiki practitioners admit they don't do anything. It's just mm -hmm. what works through. And, but also, I also know that the receiver of that energy might be playing a role into that also with faith or belief or hope or who knows what. Like, it's hard to know where to draw those lines. Um, right. You know, and, and when my, my friend who was healed, what he said to me was, I didn't have faith. I didn't know what faith was. I was just a little kid. But little kids have faith. I mean, they, you know, the, her, his mother took him somewhere. This woman spoke to him and he was, uh, he had that childlike faith, which, you know, Jesus among other people said is what we need to have. And so in a certain sense, he didn't have, you know, some belief in some doctrine, but he may have had faith. Yeah. You also bring out some really important things in this book in interesting ways. And, and one of them is touch, the importance of touch and what touch right. is all about, you know, like, Hank touched her, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. And then you have other kinds of touch. You have massage touch and you have sexual touch and and talk about touch for a little bit and then slide into talking a little bit about sexual energy because people right. get uncomfortable, but it's a powerful energy. So yeah. I know people get uncomfortable when you mention sex and religion in the same book. It's, it's that's come up. So touch was very important to me because when I, uh, one of the things that happened in, uh, at that period of time when I was in my healing from my father's death, which, which actually happened in my 30s, and I was seeing that therapist, um, I was also seeing uh, uh, a massage, uh, a woman who did body work, and, um, and then uh, continuing to do that as I began to meditate. And what, was ha what had happened when I couldn't handle my father's death emotionally was that I had tightened in my body. And I just made myself tight, especially through my torso. I'm sure you've dealt with this a lot. And so I wouldn't feel the emotions that I was afraid of. So really I would say that this whole process was a process of my body coming alive. Um, all through my 30s and into my 40s. And that was what really happened to me with meditation. In therapy, I understood what had happened. But in meditation, you know, my body was just like a garden that was sprouting flowers. And um, But um, through that whole process, massage was really important to me. And it, it, it's odd to speak of learning things through massage. I mean, I think 
people don't always understand what you mean, but I learned a lot about myself through massage. Um, and it was just a very important part of the process. Um, and uh, I just think touch has been very important uh, to me in my life and in my healing process. Well, I, uh, you know, as a body worker, right, as well as a spiritual counselor, you know, do a lot of hats in there, but that mind-body connection, and also I'm convinced that a lot of people are disconnected from their bodies, or they don't spend enough time trying to figure out, okay, how do I feel, or what does, what happens to me if I am touched there, and sometimes it's just someone holding your hand. Um, you talk a lot about the rubbing of the belly, which mm -hmm. is yeah, very important. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the cosmic mudra, right? Um, right. And mm -hmm. and the belly is the seat of so much emotion. So what one Zen teacher told us is that um, that anger is up around the heart region, and sadness is below that in the belly, and then fear is further down, like in the lower belly. And that often what we do, we fear is the most uncomfortable thing to feel. So we'd rather feel anger, we'd rather feel, feel sorrow, and those can all be part of it. But what I discovered, you know, when I was really going through meditation and long retreats and getting into my father's death was that the final thing I needed to face was the fear I felt because I was afraid our family just could not hold together. We wouldn't make it. And truth be told, I mean, we had some problems, but and it was difficult, but we did get through it. And so, um, but facing that fear was kind of the final thing. I went through the anger, I went through the sorrow, and then the fear. Yeah, and um, I wanna get back to sex in a minute, but I wanna make a comment. Um, uh, what I really liked in this book too was how Hank just kept going, do I really have this power in my hands? And everybody's like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Like, I don't know, you know, because he lives inside there and he can't feel what they're feeling. And I've kind of decided I want all my Reiki students to read your book, right? Because it, <laughs> it opens up all of these discussions about things and it, it's really good segue in. But you do talk a lot about sexual energy and um, you bring that openly into the book and, and, um, I want to say thank you for that, because like I said, it is like, what is this doing in this spiritual novel? <laughs> and so talk for just a moment about um, sexual energy. Sure. Well, when you're in that situation where you've tightened your torso up um, and you're holding off emotion for one reason or another, the only way you get to what we might call ecstasy is through sex. I mean, you know, it's like there's a disconnect. You've got a, an active brain and an active penis but you don't connect the two they're not connected there's no connection there and <laughs> the so two heads are not together <laughs> right gotta get your heads together okay if, if that's your only way to ecstasy then that becomes an addictive practice because right. um it's what you have to do it's just like what i was saying about writing before if that's it so and that's your way to connect so um i think Hank's situation is that he went through the same thing. I've written about Hank in other books, but he went through the same thing. And so um, in this situation, he is apparently the healer of Julie, but Julie becomes his healer because she's showing him 
that he doesn't have to be afraid of sexual expression, which he was. He was just staying away from it. But he can he can do it in a way that is not addictive and not compulsive. And uh, if I not many people have seen this in the book, but if you look at it that way, that he's her teacher and she's his teacher, you see her bringing him along slowly and carefully and um, you know, I think it's very instinctive on her part, but um, it, you know, just if you not being able to be a sexual being is is like not being able to be an emotional being. You need to have all of that together, and um, so that even though it may make people uncomfortable to have this in a supposedly spiritual book, I think you know I've written a book about sex and spirituality as well. As well, this book, The Red Thread of Passion, that was something I wrote after I began meditating because I was trying to bring these two parts of my life together. Well, you have a, a, a I'm gonna quote something out of your book and it, all, all it is, it's this very small thing you wrote. It's all healing if you use it in the right way. Right. And, and that is there, you know, because we have so many aspects of ourselves that need healing. And so, you know, kind of jump in there. Um, so we're almost out of time. I'm like, ah, wait a minute. <laughs> I got so many things I want to right, talk about. Right, I know. Um, you know, um, yeah. So in the last <laughs> minute and a half, right, um, tell us what what do you really want people to get from this book? And I also want to say that this book, the last part of the book, especially the end of the book, um, I absolutely loved how you kind of, you know, Hank goes off on kind of a self-discovery thing and has quite the experience and and ends up coming back to himself in some way. So um, what is it you really want people to get from this book and where can people find you? We've got one minute. Well, um, what I think I want people to get from this book, was, although it seems to be about this subject of faith healing, what it's really about is Hank healing. It's the thing I started off with. And that scene you're talking about at the end is the ultimate scene of Hank's healing. Um, so it, it looks like it's about this other thing, but it's really about the healing that he does himself. Um, and I've been writing about all that for years. I have a, a you know a website if people are looking, davidguy.org, which is uh, where I do a lot of writing and have posted a lot of writing and talk a lot about this book and my other books. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on my show today, David Guy. I want to call you Hank. And the <laughs> book is Hank Heals, A Novel of Miracles. I'm telling you right now, please, everybody just go get it. It's such a wonderful read. And I think it just raises all kinds of discussions and dialogues uh, about spirituality, sexuality, and what is our true purpose? What are we here for? What's our superpowers? So everybody, enjoy the week. And happy birthday, all my lovely Capricorn friends. <laughs>